Well, moms, happy Mother's Day. We want to wish every mom out there a happy Mother's Day. We're so thankful for you, and we recognize this Mother's Day doesn't look like most Mother's Day, does it? Yet I hope that you recognize how much you're appreciated and that ultimately someone will spoil you over the course of this day. My name's Matt. I'm a pastor here at Friendship Church, and I have the opportunity today to bring the message on this Mother's Day from our series entitled Everyday Idolatry, where we're looking at the things in this life that compete with God for our heart and for priority in our daily decision-making. Every day we make decisions based on certain priorities, and those priorities flow out of what we've dedicated our heart to. And God says over and over again in the Scripture, either you have dedicated your heart to me and your daily decisions are flowing out of that love for me, or you've dedicated your heart to something else and your daily decisions are motivated by something else. Anything that isn't God, that has captured our heart and is motivating our daily decisions, that's an idol. And over the course of this series, we're looking at four different idols. We're looking at the idol of possessions, pleasure, performance, and popularity. Now, when people 3,000 years ago worshipped idols made of carved wood and stone, they didn't do so because they had this passion for wood and stone. They worshipped those idols because they believed there were deities behind those idols that would give them what? that would give them fertility, that would give them abundant crops, victory in war, success in business. They worshipped those gods of stone and wood because they believed that there were deities behind them that would get them exactly the things that we're talking about in this series. Because the human heart craves these things. It did 3,000 years ago, and it does today. Now, last week, we looked at the idol of possessions. We looked at the craving for a little bit more or security through our finances and how that can squeeze God out in our daily decision-making. And we said, Lord, if if there's any root of that idol of possessions in us, we want to be rid of it. We confess that before you and we've repented of that. And we turned our hearts and our minds to Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, which we've memorized together. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And we have allowed that scripture to continue to work through our minds and our hearts to reframe our attitudes And if you didn't get a chance to memorize that last week, let me encourage you to memorize it over the course of this week. Now this week, we're going to be looking at the idol of pleasure. And we're going to start that pursuit of what pleasure looks like in the same book with the same author that we focused on last week. We're going to be looking at at the book of Ecclesiastes, written by a man who identifies himself simply as teacher. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he talks about his pursuit of pleasure. And beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, I said to my heart, come now, 
I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. He's going to give his heart over to the pursuit of pleasure, and he is hoping that it will be a heart-satisfying endeavor. How how much pleasure is he going to give himself over to? Verse 10, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my, I'm sorry, I kept my heart from no pleasure. Teacher's life consisted of living in a palace filled with the comforts. He had servants waiting on him night and day. They brought him the finest of foods, the best of wines. He had dozens of wives and concubines. Anything that a person could think of that he might indulge in for the sake of pleasure, he did. And ultimately, what is his verdict? about this wholehearted pursuit of pleasure. He gives us his verdict at the end of chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, But behold, this also was vanity. We said last week this word translated vanity here, or in some of your Bibles, meaningless. It's a word that literally in the Hebrew means vapor. If you've ever gone outside on a cold day, And since we live in Minnesota, we go outside on plenty of cold days. You have seen your breath, and it looks like it's solid and like it's there and like you could grab it. But if you go to grab for your breath, you wind up looking at your hand, and there is nothing inside of it. And he is using that word in order to describe what this pursuit of pleasure is like. Boy, it it looks like it might pursue. the, The pursuit of pleasure might give us some sort of satisfaction of the heart. But ultimately... When we do that, it is like grasping at vapor. There's actually nothing there, and we just keep grasping for more and more and more. Now, what are the things that we might pursue when we pursue the idol of pleasure? I want to give, a, give you four things this morning that might be a part of the pursuit of the idol of pleasure. But before we get to those four things, I want to remind you that when it comes to pursuing these four things that I'm about to lay out, for some, it is a pursuit of pleasure and feeling good. But for many, it is a way of dealing with pain as much as it is experiencing pleasure. That when we talk about these four different areas of pleasure that I'm about to outline, for many people, it is a matter of trying to deal with the hurt, with the relational fracture, with the emptiness on the inside. For many, the pursuit of these things is as much a way to dull the pain as it is to pursue pleasure. And that's certainly true of the first pleasure we may pursue in the idol of pleasure. And that is the pleasure of a chemical high. Why do people get drunk? Why do people get high? Well, for some, it is simply to try and experience a temporary pleasure. That is what was going on on my college campus on Thursday nights and Friday nights and Saturday nights and sometimes on Sunday nights, right? Kids would go out from their dorm and they'd seek out a party and they'd get drunk or they'd get high in order to experience a little bit of temporary pleasure for which they paid a very painful price the following morning. But more often, when people seek to get drunk, seek to get high, it is because they want something to dull the pain in their life. They've experienced abuse. 
they've experienced relational pain. They've experienced an emptiness on the inside, and they are just looking for something in order to dull that pain. And instead of turning to the God of all comfort, the God who brings healing, they instead have turned to a chemical high in order to dull that pain. Every person who deals with chemical addiction has a genuine physical addiction that they're dealing with, but at the very root of that is a spiritual idolatry that instead of turning to God in order to experience pleasure or instead of turning to God in order to deal with our pain and seek out the God of all comfort has turned to some sort of chemical, some sort of substance instead. And so it cannot be treated simply with physical measures because ultimately we have a God-shaped hole inside of us. And if we simply try and remove the substance that has become a part of us that, ha- that we've tried to use in order to fill that God-shaped hole, that hole still exists and we will simply try to fill it with something else. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says, And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I can't simply try to remove alcohol drunkness or or getting high from my life. That leaves that hole that needs to be filled by something. And God says, you have to fill that hole with relationship with me. I've made you for relationship with me. It is the only way you can have the fullness of life for which you are designed. And so instead of being drunk with wine, we're to be filled with the Spirit. It's not enough to simply empty ourselves. We need to fill with relationship with God. And if we don't do that, then we may move on from the pleasure of a chemical high to another one of these pleasures that we're talking about today, like the pleasure of sex. Now, when my kids were younger, they couldn't stand when we used the word sex in our home. And so they insisted that we call it la di da da And so it may be that because of what I'm about to say, you in your family are going to have to have a conversation about la-di-da-di-da. And I'm I'm really sorry about that, uh, but I'm also not sorry because we have to deal with this topic because it is a primary way in which the idol of pleasure is pursued within our society. Now, is sex a bad thing? Absolutely not. God says he's designed it as a great gift for us in the earliest pages of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we read, A man shall leave his parents and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They'll become one. And a married couple will grow in intimacy spiritually, relationally, but also physically. Certainly one of the things that one flesh means is one flesh. And God has given us this great gift of sexual expression for husbands and wives within marriage. And so when does sex become a problem? Sex becomes a problem when experiencing sexual pleasure becomes a priority over God. Right? The pleasure of sex is an idol when it takes priority over God. And we can tell that happens when we begin to ignore God's boundaries for sexual relationship. God has said sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. And when we 
give in to the desire for sexual pleasure and put that ahead of God and his commands and his desires, we've given in to an idol in our life. And our society has so thoroughly given in to the idol of sexual pleasure that it has done damage in the lives of people and in our society. A, a recent study done by Rutgers University, a state university, asked college students if they thought it was a good idea for couples to live together and have sexual relationship before they got married. 64% of college students across the country said they thought it was a good idea for a couple to live together and have a sexual relationship before they got married. But as this study dug in deeper, what they found was that couples who lived together and had a sexual relationship before marriage were 30% more likely to experience divorce after marriage than those who did not. And couples who lived together and had a sexual relationship before marriage, in those, in those relationships, the woman is twice as likely to be abused within the marriage. Among couples who lived together and had a sexual relationship before marriage, the woman is three times as likely to experience depression during her lifetime. In another recent study in the American Journal of Health and Behavior, it reported that women who had more than one sexual partner over their lifetime are far more likely to suffer depression than their monogamous counterparts, far more likely to suffer from addiction than their monogamous, monogamous counterparts, and far more likely to harm themselves. That same study showed that sexually active teenagers are six times more likely to attempt suicide than their counterparts. And friends, in the midst of those couple of studies, I haven't even mentioned sexually transmitted diseases, the negative impact of teen pregnancy, the negative impact of kids being raised without dads, the thousands of unborn babies being killed each month because of pregnancies outside of marriage. All because this world has given itself over to the idol of sexual pleasure and placed that ahead of the pursuit of God and living according to the standards that he has given to us. Sex becomes a problem when it takes precedent over God in our lives, and we can see that when we ignore his boundaries. But we can also see that when we choose lust over Jesus' commands. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, you can't be looking at women lustfully. This is a challenging and difficult passage. For every man I have ever met, right? raise your hand. We all raise our hands. This is challenging and difficult. And yet, at the same time, let's acknowledge the real problem that exists within our society and even within our church when it comes to the viewing and watching of pornography. In a study in 2018, over 50% of recent divorcees said that pornography played a major role in their divorce. In another study conducted a few years ago among evangelical churches across America, 68% of men who identified themselves as Christians said that they regularly viewed or watched pornography. 68% not in the past tense, had watched, regularly view or watch pornography. And by the way, 
the number was 24% among women in that same study. This is a significant problem when this idol of sexual pleasure takes command of our lives over the God that we love and want to serve. Now we'd be asking, what, what do I do? If the idol of sexual pleasure has moved into my life and, and I see it and I don't want it to be there, what do I do? I, I want to encourage you to just continue on with us through the next couple of points and we'll get there at the end of the message. But let's move on to pleasure number three within the idol of pleasure. And that is the pleasure of food. Let's see if I can step on absolutely everyone's toes as we talk about the idol of food in our lives. When Jesus Christ saves us, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and begins to give us more and more Christ-like character in our life. We call that Christ-like character fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And one of those characteristics that is a part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It is self-control that we exercise when we have a craving. And we don't really want to give in to that craving. It's self-control that keeps us from giving in to that craving. Or when we have a craving but we've already had too much of that, but, oh man, we really want more. It's self-control that keeps us from giving in for more. It's self-control that keeps us from indulging in things that aren't healthy for our body or our soul. When we are spirit-controlled, we are self-controlled. And so, friends, as you think about that, would you characterize, as you look at American Christianity, would you characterize American Christianity as having an abundance of self-control when it comes to our appetites and the things that we put in our mouth? We are to enjoy food, you guys. God says that food is one of his great gifts to us. And he wants us to enjoy it and to give him thanks for his good provision in our lives. But when that craving for the next chocolate, for the next cup of coffee, for the next fried food, for the next handful of potato chips, overwhelms what is best for us and even what we truly want, it's become an idol in our life that has to be rooted out. The New Testament talks about a group of people who lacked self-control and constantly came, gave in to the cravings of their appetites in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Paul writes, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul says there, there's a group of people there in Philippi who are opposed to Christ. And one of the characteristics that you can see in their life as those who are opposed to Christ is that their God is their belly. They give in to their appetites in life. And this may have a broader understanding of all of our appetites, but it also includes our appetites for food. He says that governs their life, and that should never be true of the believer. Being controlled by our appetites and being controlled by the Spirit don't go together. 
I, I love the way author Lisa Turkhurst, in her book entitled Made to Crave, talks about her own battle with the idol of food in her life. Uh, she writes this about her daily routine. I roll over and look at the clock. Another day. Beyond all reason and rationality, I slide out of bed and strip off everything that might weigh even the slightest ounce as I head to the scale. Maybe today will be the day the scale will be my friend and not reveal my secrets. Maybe somehow overnight, the molecular structure of my body shifted and today I will magically weigh less. But no. I yank out my ponytail holder. Hey, it's got to weigh something and decide to try again. But the scale doesn't change its mind the second time. It is not my friend this day. Vowing to do better, to eat healthier, to make good choices, I head to the kitchen only to have my resolve melt like the icing on the cinnamon rolls my daughter just pulled from the oven. Yum. Oh, who cares what the scale says when this roll speaks such love and deliciousness. Two and a half cinnamon rolls later, I decide tomorrow will be a much better day for keeping my promises to eat healthier. And since this is my last day to eat what I want, I better live it up. Another cinnamon roll, please. The next morning, I roll over and look at the clock another day. Beyond all reason and rationality, I slide out of bed and strip off everything that might weigh even the slightest ounce as I head to the scale. Maybe today will be the day. But once again, it isn't. I yank out my ponytail holder and try again. But no. Vowing to do better, eat healthier, and make good choices, I head into my, into my day only to find myself making more excuses, rationalizations, and promises for later. Always later. And the cycle I've come to hate and feel powerless to stop continues. Who, who could I talk to about this? If I admit my struggle with food to my friends, they might try and hold me accountable the next time we go out. And what if I'm not in the mood to be questioned about my nachos con queso with extra sour cream? I'll just tell them I'm starting on Monday. They'll be fine with that. After all, they don't really think I need to make changes. But I did need to make changes. I knew it. Because this wasn't really about the scale or what clothing size I was. It was about this battle that raged in my heart. I thought about craved and arranged my life too much around food. So much so, I knew it was something God was challenging me to surrender to his control. Really surrender. Surrender to the point where I made radical changes for the sake of my spiritual health, perhaps even more than for the sake of my physical health. Part of my surrender was asking myself a really raw question. May I ask you the same question? Is it possible we love and rely on food more than we love and rely on God? I greatly appreciate her honesty. And that question is an important one. Could pleasure through food be an idol in our life? How would we know? I came up with uh, three things as I, I thought about this. The first is this. Perhaps food is an idol in my life if I look to food to provide the joy and fulfillment that God is meant to provide in my life. 
If my primary anticipation each day isn't about the opportunity to spend time with God or time with my family at night, but is instead about what is for dinner, and maybe more importantly, what is for dessert. When I get up in the morning, And what excites me and what fuels me isn't the opportunity to spend time with God or an opportunity to live for his kingdom throughout the day, but what excites me is that cup of coffee and those cinnamon rolls. Maybe there is idolatry that is creeping into my life. The second thought I had is perhaps food is creeping in as an idol if we seek comfort through food instead of through God. Something goes wrong and I turn to ice cream. Something goes wrong and I turn to a second dinner. Something goes wrong and I I just eat and I eat. And we eat things because of hurt and pain. Instead of turning to God, we turn to food. The third idea I thought about is perhaps we have an issue with the idol of food when we are controlled by our appetites instead of being controlled by God's Spirit. When I can't say no, to that craving, even though I don't really want to give in, even though I know I'm going to regret it later, even though I know it is bad for me, when I am controlled by those cravings and those appetites, instead of being controlled by the Holy Spirit and the self-control that he produces in us, maybe then I recognize that this is an idol in my life. The idol of pleasure comes to us through food. Again, I want to affirm The biblical teaching is that food is good. God has provided it for us and we are to enjoy it. And he describes heaven as what? As a great banquet with him. But if we're seeking comfort and joy in food instead of in God, then that is an idol in our life. If we're giving in to our cravings when we know we shouldn't, instead of standing in the self-control that God's spirit produces, then perhaps we have an idol issue. In our life, the idol of food. Which brings us to the final pleasure that I want to talk about today, and that is the pleasure of entertainment. Some statistics from the Nielsen Company from a few years ago talk about how thoroughly entertainment dominates our culture. The average American watches 183 hours of movies and shows per month, that comes out to six hours per day. Now, if you calculate, if you study boys ages 12 through men age 29, that number jumps up to eight and a half hours. And it's not primarily about movies and shows. What is it about? It is primarily about gaming, isn't it? In a study done by the University of Kansas, it showed that the average teenager spends more time on entertainment and social media than any other activity in their life including sleep. But what's most important isn't about how entertainment is impacting others out there. What's most important is to ask the question, is there any way in which the pleasure of entertainment is functioning as an idol in my own life? Again, how would I know that? Well, I came up with Four possibilities when I was thinking about this of ways that we might identify that the pleasure of entertainment is functioning as an idol in our life. How do I know when entertainment is an idol in my life? Well, first, how about when I look to entertainment to provide the joy and comfort only God can provide? When day after day when I'm at work, what I look forward to most 
is the opportunity to get on my couch and open up my device or turn on my TV and just veg out in front of the screen or just veg out as I scroll through social media. If that is what my longing is, where I am seeking joy and fulfillment, then that's an idol in our life. When social media or the next game is what is most exciting to us, that is perhaps an idol in our life. When binging something rather than spending time with God is my primary way to get through a pandemic, that could be an idol in our life. And so first, when we look to entertainment to provide the joy and comfort that only God can provide, it's an idol in our life. The second idea I had was this. When entertainment takes precedence over time with God, it's become an idol in our life. When every night I'm committed to watching shows or watching movies or scrolling through social media or playing games, and my family never seems to make it to having quality family time or spending time praying to God together or just playing games together and having a great time reflecting the love of Jesus to each other because of media because of entertainment it's an idol it's an idol in our lives at that point when my devotions are cut off or cut short in the morning because when i get up i immediately check the local uh, news the political websites the scores on espn whatever it is and i can't get to my devotions or do the devotions that i really want because i have to dig into those things instead that's probably an idol in my life. When entertainment takes precedence over time with God, it's an idol. Third, when entertainment is drowning out the voice of God in our life, it's an idol. Our media and entertainment can be with us at all times because of our devices. Anywhere we go, we can have our shows with us, our music with us, our books with us, our social media interactions with us. Anywhere we go. And so there is never a time that has to be quiet and silent in our lives. And so the question is, how then do we commune with God? How do we have those quiet times where His Spirit is able to speak the truth of Scripture into our lives about the way that we're living in order to encourage us or in order to convict us if we never have those quiet moments in our life? Because something is always with us in media and entertainment. And then the fourth thing that I thought about, if you want to measure whether the pleasure of entertainment is an idol in your life is this, when we entertain ourselves with things that feed the flesh, the pleasure of entertainment is an idol in our life. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. And if we are intentionally devoting ourselves to entertainment that feeds the flesh rather than the spirit, then that is an idol in our life. If we find ourselves saying things like, oh, but man, that show's just so well written. Yeah, I know it's got some stuff in it I shouldn't watch. Or, oh, but it's just so funny. Chances are then, yes, you have an idol of entertainment in your life and it is taking precedent over God and your walk with God. And so we have to ask ourselves, is the pleasure of entertainment an idol in our life? When entertainment, when entertaining ourselves with things that feed the flesh, we've made pleasure and entertainment an idol in our life. So as we look at these things, 
And, and perhaps this morning we go, boy, there is perhaps some way in which the idol of pleasure in one of these four areas or another area I haven't mentioned this morning has been creeping in towards my heart. What do we do about that? What is our response to that if we see any of this idolatry in our life? Well, well, let me give you two things, and they're going to sound awfully familiar. The first is this. Confess and repent in Christian community. Yes, last week we talked about if this is an issue, if you have given in to some sort of idol in your life, confess and repent. And I have only added the words in Christian community this week. That's not just pastoral laziness. This is important. Because while we confess most importantly to God and our repentance is before Him, genuine confession and repentance has rarely taken place if we don't get our fellow believers involved in the battle. And so, friends, by all means, start by confessing and repenting any idol in your heart to God. But don't stop there. Enlist your fellow believers in that battle. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let us not conceal the idols of our heart, but spend time opening up with other believers who will go to battle with us over these things. We can do that with our friends. We call them. We spend time with a couple of friends on the phone talking about the challenges and the battles with idols in our lives. During normal times, we, we might do it over coffee or in a backyard barbecue situation. Friends, we can do it in our life groups. Life groups aren't meant to simply be shallow times of walking through the facts of the Scripture. We're to apply them in our lives in a way in which we share life with each other and we battle those things that are of greatest temptation to us. We can absolutely do that within a ministry that we offer here at Friendship Church called Celebrate Recovery. And if you're dealing with idols of pleasure in your life that have become addictions of any level, I want to encourage you to connect with Celebrate Recovery. If you're dealing with challenges in areas of chemical addiction, lust, gluttony, overindulgence in entertainment or social media, you'll find people there who want to share the burden with you and go to battle with you in these areas. So confess and repent in Christian community. Then the other thing that I want to share with you today, if there's any hint of this idol creeping into your life, is this. Seek God in fasting and prayer. Seek God in fasting and prayer. As we said last week, it isn't enough to simply try and remove the idol from our life. It is a God-shaped vacuum that we have. And if we simply try and remove the bad, something else is going to come in and replace it. And God says, that space in your life is only designed for submitting to me, walking with me, having relationship with me. And so I want to encourage us to, as believers, pursue greater relationship with him through prayer and fasting. I'm not encouraging you to pray and fast as some sort of magic good work that will do away with any temptation to pursue this idol of pleasure. I am instead encouraging you to fast and pray as a way to draw closer to your God. Because when we spend time fasting and praying, 
We are intentionally setting aside the gifts of God in order to pursue the giver of those gifts. We are saying, God, for this day of fasting, we are going to do without the gifts that you have given us that do provide some pleasure because we don't want to seek our primary pleasure in those gifts, but we want to seek our primary pleasure always in relationship with you. And so let me encourage you to pray and fast one day a week. The early Christians fasted every Thursday and every Saturday. I'm not going to lock you into a time, and I'm not going to ask you to do it two days a week. But pick a day a week and fast and pray to just say, God, I'm not passionate about your gifts as much as I am passionate about you, the giver of those gifts. It is our cry in those times of prayer and fasting that we want God more than any pleasure that we can find on the earth. It is our cry during those times of fasting along with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so let's go to war against the idol of pleasure by seeking the greatest pleasure we can experience, more of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for the work that you do in our life to provide goodness and grace and mercy for us. And we ask that your spirit would continue to grow us into greater and greater Christ-likeness doing away with the idols that the world offers to us, never putting any of your gifts ahead of you, the great giver, but instead being dedicated fully and totally to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As has been true each and every week, we have some discussion questions for you to go through when this service is over. If you're by yourself, you can spend some time going through these discussion questions, uh, perhaps journaling through them with the Lord. And if you have your family with you, then you can spend some time asking these questions of your family. I'd encourage you dads, as you're leading your families in this, adapt it to whatever age level is most appropriate for your kids. Try and adapt those questions as best you can. The questions for today are, what do people find tempting about the pursuit of pleasure? Where can you see this temptation to make pleasure an idol in your life? What negative consequences has the idolatrous pursuit of pleasure had on our world? Is there any way that God is challenging you to live differently when it comes to the pleasures that are around us? And how will you go to war against the idol of pleasure in your life? Again, I want to encourage you to spend some time with those questions when the service is over. Before the service is over, we want to spend some time worshiping God together in song and worshiping God through giving. You can continue to give to what God is doing here at Friendship Church and through the missionaries that we support by giving online on our website, by giving through our app, or by mailing in an offering here as a part of the church. But friends, we want to close our service by worshiping God, by singing together the theme song for this sermon series. And that theme song is entitled, Just Give Me Jesus. Right? You, you can have the rest of the world. This is an expression of Psalm 73. You can have the rest of the world that is of no interest. Just give me Jesus. Let's sing praises to God together.
Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning as we got to lift high the name of Jesus and dig deeper into his word. Moms, we hope that you have an amazing day, um, and we are so excited to worship back here with you next Sunday. Have an awesome day.